1: Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Max Linsky, and unfortunately not Evan Ratliff. Hey, Evan. Sorry, Mr. Guy. Hey, uh, we could just pretend he's here. (laughs) Evan, pipe down enough. Uh, Our guest this week is Hua Su, who writes for The New Yorker, used to write for Grantland. I really like his writing. He's a... He's a fan, like I am, and he writes about things he's enthusiastic about, and he gets pretty deep into them. Things, yeah. often things that I sort of think I know about, and he knows a lot more about. Yeah, I like this conversation. It's uh, one enthusiast talking to another. It was. Uh, we were uh, we were having such good rapport that we took it down to the bar after this one. You know, that is the sign of a good podcast. It is. It's true. It's something we should include in the metadata. Uh, Aaron <laughs> got drunk with guests afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> uh, our sponsor, as always, is MailChimp. They are the people to go to for your email needs. Thank you, MailChimp. Here's Aaron with Wasu. Welcome, Wahsu. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for coming in. Um, so you are a professor.
2: That's right, yeah.
1: How long have you been
2: teaching? Uh, I've been teaching at Vassar since 2007, so... Uh yeah, I've been there ten years.
1: Wow. Was teaching a primary ambition for you or something that made sense to do to make a living while writing?
2: I think when I was a college student, the life of a college professor seemed pretty cool. Yeah. You me know, too. You know, they have these great offices full of books. <clears throat> like that your vocation is to collect things and I've always been into collecting just ephemera, books, records, stuff like that. So I thought, why not try and monetize all my hobbies by becoming an academic? Um, I guess when I started grad school, I always left myself the out that, you know, if you don't finish, you could just write or do something else. At the time, I thought that would be like a really lucrative profession. But um, yeah, I always hoped that I would find a teaching gig, and I'm I'm really lucky to have one close by.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, living in New York, teaching at Vassar, that's... Um a lot of people
2: probably want to kill you for that <laughs>
1: job right now. I feel
2: very blessed.
1: What do you teach, actually? I'm curious.
2: Uh, I'm in the English department there, although weirdly after my first semester teaching, I had taught more English classes than I ever took as a college student.
1: What 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 did you study yourself?
2: I was a political science major and I took a bunch of like ethnic studies courses. At some point, one of my favorite political science professors, uh, the late Michael Rogan, he said, you know what? Like, you're not right for poli-sci either. You should do American studies. So that's what I did for grad school and somehow ended up in the English department.
1: I was going to say, looking over your uh, body of work, um, you've published an incredible amount of articles for a person of your age, definitely into the hundreds, possibly past 200, <laughs> I would say. I lost track. Um you write about such a wide array of topics. Um, how did you develop as a writer into someone who's kind of just, I'll tackle anything, I'm just gonna write about <laughs> things that interest me?
2: I think being in graduate school throughout most of the 2000s, yeah. like I had this other thing I was doing, so why not use journalism as this excuse to just you know learn a ton of shit about all sorts of different topics? And I think that's the main thing I distinguish, like. Between the two, um, I just love immersing myself in some material for like two or three weeks and coming out of it with a piece of writing. And that's just really different from how academics work. You know, you you spend two to three years to write, you know, a 40-page article.
1: I just finished your book, um, which is out Thank now, you. I think, yes? floating. Yeah, yeah, floating, it's out. Uh, It's called A Floating Chinaman. It's the story of how books uh, can frame people's understanding of an entire country and ethnic group um so you take um a book that caused a huge ripple pearl bucks the good earth and in many ways influenced how people looked at china in a mass way for decades to come afterwards but then you go a step further and don't focus on that book particularly but you take sort of the topics that are brought up by that book refracted down to this kind of tiny human, very empathetic and kind of eccentric story uh, of this one writer. Did you have that whole that whole uh, elaborate tableau when you started? Or w- where did you start with, with the characters in the book?
2: Yeah, when I started it, I was a grad student doing American studies and I was just interested in Asian American stuff. <laughs> but I ended up in a program that didn't really have many people I could work with. And so one of my advisors said, well, you know, Pearl Buck is this fascinating character because it's true. I mean, she wrote The Good Earth in the early 30s and up until I would say deep into the mid 60s, many, many Americans, like millions of Americans would still refer to that book as like, this is the book that told me to admire the Chinese. Um, The problem is I didn't love the book. I remember reading it in middle school and having just a really strange experience with it.
1: It's kind of a weird book in retrospect.
2: Totally. I mean, I think in a way you couldn't write that book now and it not be referred to as appropriation. Yeah. But I think that sort of does her a disservice because, you know, she knew Chinese, she grew up there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, She's far more interesting than I gave her credit for being. but. As I was writing the book, I kept thinking, I don't really want to just write this book about Pearl Buck. Like, and at this time, I was also writing a lot of like hip hop journalism. Yeah. And so I was really interested in, it was right around the time of Jay-Z and Nas, and soon thereafter, like 50 Cent emerges. And I was just really fascinated with sort of the power of beef and how like, dissing the person right ahead of you could help you make your mark. So for years, I would just I was just looking for someone who had the gall to diss Pearl Buck, because uh, nobody did. Like she, not only was a best-selling author, but she and her husband sort of ran this publishing house that would co-sign Chinese authors, co-sign sort of acceptable political views. So it wasn't until I found Zhang that I felt like, no, now this is a book.
1: He's he's kind of the the prototype of the eccentric failed writer. Anyone who's worked in publishing has met some version of, of this person, a guy with a suitcase full of his books and all of the quotes on the back of the book are people rejection letters that he yeah. got for the book. It's it, it feels very human.
2: Yeah. And he he would write himself into his books as a character. Yeah. And his own characters wouldn't take him seriously. So he's sort of the the floating Chinaman in the title. That was the title of a book that he wrote that uh, he never finished. Where you know? did
1: you where did you find him?
2: he's already kind of known within kind of Asian American literary yeah. history circles. But I remember I was at the New York public library and I'd never seen an original copy of his books. And I opened it and there was just all these negative blurbs on the back. And I was just like, this is it's weird to have done this in the thirties. I mean, it's weird. It would be weird to do that now, but everything he did is, is very weird for the thirties. Yeah. It
1: feels very modern. Yeah. um, And, and an almost, what we would now know as performance art kind of way.
2: Yeah, and I I always think about whenever I talk about the books I'm like who who's doing this now and I always think of Lil B because at a certain point Lil B just doesn't seem to care about like making money, you know, or being part of the game. He's just sort of on the sidelines um in the margins. Anyhow, so I was at the library I thought, wow, these books are way more interesting than I thought they were. And then as I was flipping through them, I noticed that one of the characters in one of his novels was named Pearl. And then I read it and then at the end of the book, it's revealed that these characters are the cousins of Pearl Buck and her characters. And I was like, that's wild. And, and now I've found my foil. Um, but in the academic world, I mean, I feel like I've, I've kind of run into people who think it's strange to write a book about someone so obscure. But I don't know, That just that's what I've always been drawn to when writing about culture, you know, just the people who could have been or the people who never made it or people who just offered an alternative.
1: Yeah. You've written about present day artists. Um, you write profiles, you write critically about music and comedy. What's it like writing about a person who was doing something that felt quite modern, but was doing it in the 1930s, as opposed to, say, I just reread your um, Hannibal Burris profile from uh-huh. The Fader. Like, how how is it different trying to talk about an artist uh, from that period?
2: Sounds bad, but one thing is, you know that this person will never read what you wrote. I mean, maybe his ghost will or something, but... I think that that gives you a little bit more license to speculate as to like a narrative arc or you know things like that.
1: Yeah. Well the the sort of the specter of failure looms so large yeah. over the book. I mean an important part of the book and an important part of that character in the book is you would probably never know about this if you were a contemporary of Chang's because yeah. he is so deeply obscure and and in some ways is um actively working against his own success by totally. um, alienating people badgering people um, doing things that that would cause you to never know he exists in a way um, that seems like a big difference I mean you wouldn't be writing a profile of a deeply failed artist probably today
2: yeah and if you did it would be pretty troubling in tone It'd be kind of <laughs> I mean, brutal yeah I mean it would just be one of these weird like Look at this crazy, exotic, you know you know what I mean, like yeah. there's there's definitely a type of article that that does that, but yeah, the a central theme of the book is just failure and sort of how it compels people sometimes to be more creative, more innovative. But I think one of the differences is I don't think he saw himself as presenting an alternative for how you live in in the publishing world, in capitalism or whatnot. I think he was just Convinced that he had as legitimate a claim to write a book as Pearl Buck, and so now you know, 80 years later, I can kind of rhapsodize about how he was presenting an alternative to to life as it was, uh, and there's something there that you know you can't do in the present. Like it's harder to point at moments in the present and say, yes, this is this is a fleshed out alternative to how life is right now.
1: Deeper and deeper as I got into the book. I thought that maybe there would be some redemption for him. And like, (laughs) well, especially when he uh, when he moves to Hollywood, and becomes a bit actor. I was like, oh, he's going to get like a a great part. and He's going to like be a great success as an actor. So, no, no, nothing like (laughs) that.
2: (laughs) Well, to me, he was sort of redeemed in that. um, And I guess this is insofar as an academic book would ever need a spoiler alert. Yeah. The spoiler is that, you know, he ends up in Hollywood he becomes just sort of the generic Oriental quote unquote yeah. in different Hollywood movies but he's also surveilled by the FBI and the INS and I mean it's a little weird to put it this way but I felt kind of proud when I found those FBI files I thought you know what this your your literature has staying power right. like someone is reading it and taking you seriously granted you know they're taking it seriously to vet whether or not you're actually a danger to the country but in a way I feel like Had he lived and had he known that, um, he would have really appreciated that. He would have found it kind of amusing.
1: Hey, I'm going to pause things here briefly for a word from our sponsor, Squarespace. You can use Squarespace to make just about any kind of website, whether it's a professional blog, an online store, maybe a gallery for some photographs. Uh, They got you covered. And if you sign up for a year, you get a free custom domain of your own, whatever you like, as long as someone else doesn't already have it. In that case, you'll have to make it wacky. Uh, They've got beautiful templates. You can manipulate said templates with the click of your mouse, so you won't be needing to get all into the deep nitty gritty. You will be up and running in no time. If you do decide you want to sell something, you could get Amazing seamless commerce tools. And if you're selling something and you don't really know how to do it, guess what? They've got 24 7 customer support to help you out. So I want you, that's you, the person listening to this show, to start your free trial today at squarespace.com. Put an offer code LONGFORM. You'll get 10% off your first purchase. That's right, 10% off for our listeners with the code LONGFORM at squarespace.com. Thank you, Squarespace. This show is also brought to you by Texture. It's that time of year where everyone is traveling and you're trying to cram a bunch of magazines into your carry on bag. Don't do it. With Texture, a new app, you can get unlimited access to over 200 magazines in that convenient thing in your pocket. Or the slightly less convenient thing that's like the bigger form factor of the thing in your pocket. Anyway, Texture has gone beyond delivering just the magazine. They made it easy to find and enjoy articles you want to read with daily recommendations, exclusive interactive features, videos, and so much more. It's searchable. You can mark what you like, check out back issues, bonus content. They even curate magazines and articles for you, giving you what you want without the hassle So why on earth would you subscribe to just a couple magazines when you could have all of the best ones on your smartphone or tablet all the time for way less? Right now, if you're listening to this show, you can get a 14-day free trial when you go to texture.com slash longform. That's 14 days to try texture for free at texture.com slash longform. Thanks, Texture. Here I am back with Hua Su. When you write about an enthusiasm of yours, Uh whether it's H.T. Chong, or it's Kraut Rock, or it's Rat Beefs, how do you know whether that enthusiasm, whether you have something to add to that enthusiasm, (laughs) and how do you separate the enthusiasm from your role as a writer when writing about it?
2: Um... Where I start is rarely with the thing itself, like there's a lot of, I was just thinking about my favorite records this year and I didn't write about most of them because I just don't really have anything more to say, or I don't think I have anything interesting to say. I think I usually start with a curiosity about like the world, which sounds kind of weird and pretentious, but I'm just really interested in what it's like to be alive right now and I might have some question about how technology mediates our life or how fandom works now or what it's like to listen to music um, through a computer rather than a stereo. So I have these, you know, curiosities about the world, and then I, I just need to find something to funnel that through.
1: Do you bounce off editors <laughs> a lot?
2: I do. I do. And I think I, I develop a lot of ideas that I'm curious about just talking to my friends and... Uh, so I, I think when I'm writing, I often go through my old like G chat transcripts or old emails.
1: Yeah. When you bring a, a, an idea from GChat uh-huh. and you bring it to an editor and you're like, hey, you know, I was talking to this guy about this. I don't know. I think it's something there. Are you looking for a yeah, that's good or that seems like a not great idea? Are you are you waiting for a feedback for someone else to say that's interesting to me?
2: I don't know. I guess I'm just curious if what I'm saying makes any sense, yeah, or if it's actually like really obvious. <laughs> and <laughs> I've just I, I had a kid like a year and a half ago, and I remember going to an editor and saying, I have this idea about identity politics, and then, and then he sent me links to four pieces that said the exact same thing, and he's like, I can't believe you didn't know about all this stuff. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna blame the child for this one, but. I think part of it is just the vetting to see if there's any anything unusual or anything kind of distinctive about what I'm saying, or is it just another piece about identity politics?
1: Yeah. When you take something like identity politics, which um, I won't even say where we are in the like Trump saga, because I don't want to like instantly date date us. But we're in it. We're in a time where identity politics are in the news. Is it? scary or does it give you pause sort of adding your voice to that chorus um as someone who does something that is otherwise quite unique and eclectic um not necessarily because something bad would happen but because it puts you you in a uh it puts you in the company of a party that you might not want to attend
2: yeah um i feel that more and more definitely i mean i think When I started writing about music, which was kind of where it all began.
1: Yeah, the way you you used to be able to get people angry on the Internet writing about music. (laughs) Exactly, you know.
2: (laughs) Um, You know, back then, I think I came out of this generation where we loved the music, but it was also uh, a lens through which you could talk about, like, politics or sort of social issues. Yeah, and identity. Yeah, and identity, totally. And I think that um, at the time, that was just sort of, the proxy world to have these conversations. And so I think as I've stepped more into those actual just sort of writing about race, writing about identity type conversations, the level of, yeah, there is more of a level of anxiety Yeah. Um, as time passes, not just in terms of whether you're contributing anything, but also whether something you say uh, was clumsily phrased or yeah. whether or the degree to which you can be misinterpreted. Um, those are all things that I think have become way more at the front of the mind as, you, as you're working on these things.
1: Yeah. As someone who's a music fan, and I, it's very clear from your writing that you're a fan. Not, okay, cool. not simply a critic, but like a, a pretty committed fan.
2: That's that's interesting, I don't always get that. Oh, really?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think you're definitely a fan. Cool, but, I mean, I, I do too. But as someone who has been a fan for a long time, and also developed as a writer in that sphere. Has it changed how you listen to music now that you write about it online?
2: Yeah, I think when I started, I think when I started writing about music, I was just making a zine out of my room in high school. and.
1: What what era are we talking about? Like, a, we you mean literally a zine, like a, a yeah, printed like Xerox? Yeah. We're, we're, we're from the we're yeah. both from that era. We probably, we're both from the Barry. We may have been at the same Kinkos at some point.
2: Yeah, and I I'm pretty sure things I made were because you went you you grew up in Berkeley. I grew I up went in to Berkeley. Berkeley. So yeah. I would I would go to like Comic Relief and Mod Lang and Amoeba and uh, Cody's. Drop off my zine on consignment. I think I made like eleven dollars over the course of what, 10 was the, years. what was the zine about? It was just about music. Um, it went through many different names, but I think at the time it was just about distinguishing your sense of taste because mm-hmm. it was the '90s, and I think there's there's a less fraught relationship to having these kind of elite conversations about how like you just have really cool taste or elitist taste. I think that writing about music has changed my enjoyment but it hasn't necessarily made me less enthusiastic like when i find something i love i still love it i think djing which is something i started doing in the late 90s changed it more cuz it was a chance to see people kind of interact with music yeah in a way where when i'm writing i'm really just thinking about how i interact with music in that moment but um you know when you're when you play music out you sort of see it and it just really changes your perception of what's good or bad or useful.
1: What music were you into in, in the period where you were making zines and, and starting to DJ?
2: When I was making zines, it was mainly, I think it was a pretty generic kind of 90s pavement and Wu-Tang Clan kind of thing. Yeah. Stuff that seemed independent or alternative. And then when I started DJing, it was mainly kind of like hip-hop and disco. So.
1: What's it like seeing your own students kind of reaching that same stage of their development in 2016?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I definitely feel like a vampire sometimes, just sort of leeching off the life energies of my students. Uh, I mean, I learn a lot about new bands, new acts, things like that. It's cool to see them struggle with some of the same questions or some of the same enthusiasms that I had, but their context is so different And I think their approach to history is really different as well. Yeah, Acquiring knowledge is no longer like a struggle. So I think that's one of the main differences. Um,
1: Do they even have the idea of the collector stuff? Like I was also a collector. I also grew up around Amoeba Music in Berkeley, California, which was a great place to buy a lot of vinyl for $1 to $5. And I think my identity as a consumer of art then was like, that of the collector completist, yeah. not that in the modern context, I was that much of a collector completist, but that was the only way to access the past was sort of through acquisition and sort of discipline and organization and those kind of things. And that now that must be out the window,
2: I would think. I don't know if it's totally out the window, but I do think that a huge difference, you know, if you're making zines, if you're buying records, it's sort of like a hands-on lesson in how like the means of production work or like mm-hmm. how distribution works. And even bad records I would buy in high school, I would look at the back and I would say like, why why did I have to mail order this? Like, why can't I get this anywhere? Um, so I think that kind of material culture, kind of the history that you can glean from objects, it's very different now because... No more import releases. Yeah, like there's no longer the sense of like injustice or kind of weird pretentious pride in having that. Yeah. Um, everything just, the fact that everything is accessible means you no longer have to look at the zine and wonder like what had to happen for this to end up in my possession?
1: Right. You know? It's almost like uh, at that point in time you could write something and the sheer will to typeset it and print it and distribute it made it seem like it had some value or or had at least was yeah, an totally. achievement of some kind. Yeah, I would think writing on the internet today it's harder to get that first sensation of having done something,
2: yeah, and I'm not saying that it was better then it's just different, yeah, and I still feel a thrill when I hear something on Bandcamp that I've never heard before and something that I really love. It's very different to download it like i I really like having things, yeah, but um. I think that desire to hear new stuff hasn't really subsided but maybe just my relationship to the larger apparatus has.
1: In some ways I find it difficult to focus on the music or the art now like I'm if I were writing, which thank god I'm not. But if I were writing, you know, I would be constantly wanting to write about streaming and these sort of different like yeah. technological apparatuses and different ways that culture comes to us now, which is in some ways at a crossroads with writing about the art itself. Like if you're constantly writing about now you can get everything streaming, everything's different. It's harder to focus on a specific record or start harder to focus on a single artist who's trying to achieve something finite in their own catalog, which is itself 0.001% of the Spotify catalog. How have you dealt with that, that in your own writing as someone who's covered music um, through several different formats?
2: I think for me, it's become more foregrounded in what I do. Yeah, I still don't want every piece I write to be like, whoa, isn't the internet nuts?
1: It's very hard to avoid that.
2: Um, yeah, but there, I feel like there's always moments in everything I write where there is a sense of like, it used to be like this, and now it's like this, and what does that mean? Yeah, But uh, I don't think I've ever been that good of a just straight kind of formalist critic. Like People told me that they can't tell if I necessarily like stuff or sort of what it sounds like. I'm not as good at I think describing what things sound like so I'm really interested in kind of where it's embedded like what this says about human history and (laughs) human potential in 2016 but um, I don't know every now and then I do try and write something that is more of a test to see if I can describe you know someone's voice or what a beat sounds like but you know like the Kanye record that came out earlier this year you know it's a fascinating record as a record but it's It's way more interesting that there's no single version of it, you know, or that in theory, unless you bootleg it, uh, you can't listen to it in your car, you know, or or it's very difficult to listen to your car. Yeah. So stuff like that is actually more interesting to me than telling you whether I think it's great or not. Yeah. But, um, you know, you, you sort of have to do that as well.
1: When you're writing you've written for everywhere. I mean, you've <laughs> you've written for a lot, you know, you've written for Grantland, you've written for LA Review of Books. You're now writing I think fairly regularly for newyorker.com. Um when you're writing for say the New Yorker, uh-huh. and you're writing with your own sort of cultural depth and, you know, your own history of interests. You're taking that to an audience that yeah, maybe isn't going to catch like a stray Lil B, you know. reference sure. without some context. <laughs> Are you thinking a lot about, okay, this is what I can and can't assume about
2: what they may have listened to, what mm-hmm. they may be
1: familiar with, and yeah. what's happening in music right now?
2: I think about that a lot. Uh, and it might seem... That might not come across, right? I think there's probably still a way in which... You could read things I write in the magazine and think like, man, he's really pretentious and <laughs> and trying to talk above my head. But I am really interested in clarity and explaining things to people who might not be familiar with my interests. So that's something I, I really try and do, um, in part because my parents try and read everything I write. Hmm. And, you know, they're like fluent in English or whatnot, but it takes them a while to read you know, like a 1500 word piece. And I never really want anyone to feel like they can't participate when I'm writing. So whether I'm writing about like race and politics or writing about like music, like I kind of want anyone to get some value from that, Um, whether or not they agree or whether or not they have an opinion on my opinion. But I think At The New Yorker, you know, like, you are very conscious of the fact that, at least on the print side, the average age of the reader is, like... 78. Yeah, much older than, say, the average reader of, like, Pitchfork or Stereo Gum. So I think that's folded into it. And weirdly, I think it works for me because as a teacher, as an academic, like, that's what I do. Like, I like introducing people to new ideas in a way that makes sense to their lives.
1: Are your parents immigrants?
2: Yeah, they both came in like the early 70s. And I remember as a kid my dad telling me that when he moved to the United States he subscribed to The New Yorker and then he just returned it after. He's like canceled it after a month because he had no idea what any of it was about. And you know, at the time it certainly wasn't a magazine for like a Chinese immigrant fresh off the boat or off the plane rather. Um, in the early 70s. And I don't know, I always think about that. I always think I kind of want my dad to understand, even though he's not that interested in Dr. Dre. Like, I still think, you know, I want him to be able to glean something from this. And I also want someone who is like a Dr. Dre stan to think, like, oh, I never thought about this that way.
1: What does your father think of your work?
2: I don't... (laughs) I think they're into it. I think they've they've gotten over the fear that this is not a way to make a living.
1: <laughs> Which, well, well, they're right.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, I think they've really come to appreciate it, but um, I don't know what they think piece to piece. I think sometimes they pick up on things that um, I didn't see, but um, yeah, I think they enjoy trying to figure out these things. And I remember... My parents weren't into me listening to hip hop when I was younger, and now they'll send me articles about you know like rappers and lawsuits and things like that so
1: what i mean what what did they want for you?
2: I don't know this definitely isn't meant to become like a tiger parent thing because <laughs> my parents were actually very chill, yeah, but I think part of the whole like model minority immigrant ethos thing is. It's a lot easier to excel in fields where there's there's a very um, predictable metric for success. Yes. You know what I mean? So, like, you go into math or you go into sciences because there's a right or a wrong answer, and if you can deliver that, it's all good. Yeah, Writing is not that, you know? So, you could be a great writer and, and not have, and, and sort of the meritocracy of things might not ever recognize that. So... I think they, they just thought, you know, should go to, like, law school or—I mean, they were into the idea of the academic thing, but um, I think writing, being a music critic, being a cultural critic, it just wasn't something they understood as a vocation, what? Which, which makes sense. I mean, it, it's not— uh When I was a kid, my dad would read Rolling Stone, but I don't <laughs> think there's a pressure your dad is this guy who's just
1: constantly like <laughs> being disappointed by like various pop culture yeah <laughs> <man>. oh, <laughs> people'
2: terrible <laughs> um you know like he would he was really engaged in in music, but I don't think he had any sense of like how to get his kid into that world, so it was easier for them to encourage me to do things that like they understood better.
1: What do you think it was? in yourself that led you to not want to embrace maybe the kind of stuff like becoming a doctor or a scientist that was expected of you?
2: I just wasn't good at those things and I also just felt like I could bluff my way through a lot of, I think in in school at a young age I realized that if you can write well, you can compensate for the fact that you may not know what you're talking about. So that was really alluring to me. (laughs) Yeah. And I think uh, I just pursued that. And I didn't really have any sense that it would become something I would kind of do. I don't know how you are, but when I was a kid and growing up in California, everything like New York publishing, magazines, all these things, they just seemed like a million miles away. I
1: wasn't even aware that it existed. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and I remember being at, you know, like the Borders books. And when I, was in, when I was in college and looking at the New York Times, New Yorker, New York, and thinking like, oh, but I live in California, so none of this has any relevance to my life. Um, and I think back, and it's so strange, because it's not like I didn't have some degree of privilege growing up. And, you know, I was at Berkeley and all these things, but the idea of this kind of publishing world was just very distant. And I think Maybe I just sort of internal that He said for my parents, maybe it was just part of growing up in California.
1: Now that you've made it in the publishing world <laughs> with a book out from Harvard University Press, no less. Um, how do you budget your timing? how do you how do you function as a teacher and a writer? Um Do you have like a quota of stories you try to do every year? Most people I know who freelance are like freelancing for um, last month's rent check. so, It's a different equation when you have a regular income, I would assume.
2: Yeah, and I feel very, very fortunate that that's the case. I do have a quota of things I have to write per year right now, and I try and do those. I I do a lot of thinking in the car and on the train. For me, the main challenge is always coming up with the first and last line of something. Once I've figured out where a piece begins or ends, I feel like I'm like, 85% done, which is ridiculous because that means, like, there are many times when I've written a sentence that I think is, like, great, and then I step away from the computer and come back at 3 in the morning and realize, like, oh, no, there's still, like, 1,578 words left. But um, I spend a lot of time just kind of crafting the piece in my head before I write it uh, because my commute to school is pretty long.
1: Yeah. My last question. Um, you teach kids. Yeah. Some of whom it seems like, based on um, their Rate My Professor uh, reviews, seem to know that you have a second life as a writer. What do you say to, to a kid who who wants to do what you do? Is that something they ask? Does that even come up?
2: It comes up sometimes. Um, I don't know. This is sort of like the advice to a young writer question, right?
1: In a way, yeah. But I guess the difference is, the climate for writers is now totally different than when you were making zines. It is. But it doesn't seem any easier to sort of, as a student, figure out how you would get from point A to point B. Do you, Does anything strike you as uh, valuable along that route?
2: Yeah. I Like when I was in college, the idea of being an academic but also writing for a public audience was, it wasn't encouraged. Even when I was in grad school, it wasn't. Like a thing you did. And so it's been really fortuitous for me to, to do what I do now because I think if I'd been, if we'd been having this conversation 10 years ago, like I would have had to make a choice one yeah. or the other. So one thing I, I'm always encouraging my students is just to, you know, remain open to different, <laughs> like different parallel timelines, basically. A lot of my students. Go to PhD programs, like, you know, you, you want to think about different paths you can take from grad school, not necessarily subscribing to the idea that only one thing will make this journey worthwhile. I don't know, but I feel like my advice tends to be way more every day. Like, turn shit in on time. Don't be a dick. <laughs> don't come to my class late. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Hua Thanks, Aaron. That was the Long Farm Podcast. Thank you very much to Hua Su for coming in. Thanks to my co hosts, Max and Evan. Thanks to Janelle Piper, our editor. Thanks to our intern, Courtney Harrell. Thank you to our amazing sponsors, MailChimp, Texture, and Squarespace. We'll be back next week.
0: Why do you run? Why does anyone?